Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 358 with Dr. Dick Morgan. He is back and he's got a fresh book, which is so important, talking about the problems of virtual communication, how they get solved. So you'll learn one, the magic question that bridges much of the virtual gap. Two, how bad online behavior is leaking into face-to-face communication. And three, how video calls confuse our sixth sense to exhaust us. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, You'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F358. While at awesomeatyourjob.com, I hope you'll check out some of our cool stuff. One cool thing I'd point you to is the Gold Nugget email list, which gives you summary note, taken wisdom insights from each of the guests. We got them from Dr. Nick and from the 358 guests who've gone before him. And in so doing, you get the insight wisdom all the faster. Now here's Nick's story. Dr. Nick Morgan is one of America's top communication theorists and coaches. He's a passionate teacher who's committed to helping people find clarity in their thinking and ideas and then delivering them with panache. He has been commissioned by Fortune 50 companies to write for many CEOs and presidents. He's coached people to give congressional testimony, to appear on the Today Show, and to deliver an unforgettable TED Talk. He's worked widely with political and educational leaders, and he has himself spoken at conferences and moderated panels at venues around the world. Big thanks to Nick for sharing his wisdom with us. and Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Nick. Nick, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, it's a great pleasure to be with you again. Oh, yeah. We talked a while back. Uh, Indeed. Well, it was such a treat then because your book, Give Your Speech, Change the World, was such a hit with me and with many, many readers. And so you've got a, a new one coming out all about connecting in virtual spaces. And first, I got to see if you have seen this clip from uh, the TV series Silicon Valley about the holographic communication chamber. No, I haven't. Oh. But uh, it sounds cool. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, the thing that gets me is that they start in like, a, and we'll link to it in the show notes. They start in like a fancy holographic chamber, then it's not working. And someone's <laughs> like sticks his face up near the camera trying to fix it. And they're just like, oh, we don't have enough bandwidth. And they get onto like a Skype-like program and then it sort of freezes up and it's like, oh, you got to update your software. Oh, and yeah. then they're on a cell phone and the, <laughs> the connection goes bad. And it's like, that is wise in terms of no matter what technology you've got, you know, something can go awry technically. And then you're speaking about things that aren't quite working even beyond the technical difficulties. So what's the scoop in the book? Can you hear me? Yeah, that's right. The the technical stuff is is uh, what people tell me about first, and of course that's very irritating. As you just described it, that was a sort of a great compendium of all the things that might go wrong, and and as we all know, they do. They do on a regular basis. Calls get dropped. Um, the audio conferences, um, mute button doesn't work. I mean, the the video conference is exhausting for some reason or it freezes up uh, because there is enough bandwidth. I mean, these things, it's the stuff of daily life. And and what's fascinating to me is that people just sort of accept that. Mm-hmm. And they don't talk about it much, uh, except, of course, as it's happening. Um, it's a little bit like I was reading about traffic jams the other day, and it turns out that um, if you measure people's blood pressure while they're stuck in a traffic jam, it goes way up. But as soon as the traffic starts moving, their blood pressure comes back down. It's like they don't stay that angry. 
That's really interesting to me because uh, it suggests that we have this tolerance for sort of low-level hassle at the technical level. But what's going on um, beneath that and what I found in doing the research for the book is that each of those forms of virtual communication basically strips out the essential thing that humans need to communicate with each other, which is clues that you get when you're face-to-face and talking to somebody easily and naturally about their intent. That's what we care about. We care about what is that other person thinking, feeling? What does that other person mean when they say what they say? So um, if you're sitting across from somebody and they say, your hair's on fire and you know them, um, you can tell immediately whether they're kidding or whether you actually need to get a fire extinguisher. Mm -hmm. Online, you can't tell. And most of our virtual communications, therefore, are endlessly frustrating and endlessly misunderstood because of that lack of emotional information, that lack of human intent. And uh, we imagine that we're communicating the same way. We're all generals fighting the last war. We, we talk to each other via email, uh, via audio conference, and even via video conferences, which we can get into, assuming that it's the same as face-to-face because we don't really think about it. We don't know any other way to communicate. And as a result, we communicate assuming that everything's getting through. Our intent is getting through, and it actually isn't. And so we can offend the other person or the other person misunderstands us, and then we don't quite understand why, and we get cranky as a result. And Welcome to the virtual world. So that was the territory that I discovered as I began my research. That's intriguing. So that assertion there is that what we fundamentally want to know is the intention of the person on the other side. You're suggesting your research reveals that we're really more interested in what the human is thinking, feeling, believing than in the sort of word content that they're projecting. That's absolutely right. We care about their emotions. So it's the emotions tell us how important is this communication? Is this person uh, uh, trying to get something across to us that's desperately important? Is this person just making chit-chat? Is this person flirting with us? Is this person angry at us? Is this person a threat? All those kind of questions play constantly in our unconscious minds, and we want to know the answers to those things. And when we don't get the answers, then that makes us uncomfortable. And here's the, the added twist about this that I discovered. So uh, imagine the human brain as a multi-channel organism that's constantly seeking for other people's intent and attitude. And then imagine that that attitude doesn't come through. The intent doesn't come through because it's stripped out by virtual communication. Then what happens is the brain doesn't like empty channels. And so it fills the channels with memories and assumptions and stuff it makes up. Hmm. But, but, and here's the thing, it fills it with negative information because it makes sense in an evolutionary, in evolutionary terms to assume the worst. So if you're walking through the savanna and you see a shadow, it makes sense for your brain to assume that it's a tiger and to make steps to get out of the way before you're killed rather than to assume it's just a friendly uh, rabbit or something. Um, And our brains do the same thing when we don't get other people's intent. We assume that the worst. And that's why virtual communications are always turning into trolling situations or people are always getting angry at you or you make what you assume is a joke in, say, email and the other person is offended for some reason. And you think, how could they be so stupid? I didn't mean that at all. And then you get angry at them and then you have to spend six more emails straightening out the mess that's been created. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that is fascinating. So in terms of just fundamental human nature and I mean, I did not know that (laughs) in terms of we are naturally filling in the empty channels. And we have a strong bias for filling it in in a negative way. 
I guess I see that all the time. Right. But I just, I guess I didn't stop to think that that is kind of hardwired into most people as opposed to, you know, oh, I've bumped into a couple touchy characters, <laughs> you know, in my day. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, there are, of course, human exceptions. But what we're talking about here is not the, the, um, out loud things that people say. People are often, often more or less like Mr. Rogers in that situation. We're talking about the unconscious assumptions, of course, and those we're less aware of, but they exist very powerfully nonetheless, and they influence our decision-making. They influence how we react to other people. And, and so the brain is out there always asking, is this person friend or foe? What's this person's intent? And when we're not getting a clear answer, we assume the worst. Yeah. And that's the nature of virtual communications. And that's the problem. In fact, that's the first of five problems that I talk about in the book that lead to so much of our frustration uh, in the virtual world. And the reason why I think a large part of why uh, so many people have noted that the world has turned angry in the last five to ten years. Hmm. And, and it's a phenomenon that many people uh, ask about and they say, why is everybody so angry these days? And why is why is the conversation, the political conversation, the business conversation, why will these things turn so sour? And and hello, it's because for about the past 10 years, we've switched from mostly face-to-face communications to half virtual, half face-to-face, or maybe it's more like three quarters virtual, mm-hmm. a quarter face-to-face. And it's it's a huge unregulated social experiment uh, that's been going on for about a decade now since the mobile phone became ubiquitous. And we're only just now beginning to wake up to the dangers associated with it. I mean, at first, the advantages were obvious. It's easier to communicate, much less friction, to use the Silicon Valley term. It's uh, I can send out thousands of emails. doesn't cost me anything. I don't have to lick any stamps. I don't have to mm-hmm. walk to the post office. I mean, there, there are all kinds of there are unquestionable benefits um, with uh, audio conferences and video conferences and email. I don't have to travel as much. So that cuts down on wear and tear and it saves the travel budget. So there are powerful incentives to use virtual communications. That's why, especially as I say in the last 10 years, that's why it's just swept the planet um, and swept the human race. But only now are we starting to wake up to the fact that there are some uh, some downsides. And uh, For me, the single most alarming statistic that captures this is that – one, a, a group of psychologists studied uh, the teenage girls and their time on cell phone. And what they found was there's a straight line relationship between the number of hours you spend on the on your mobile phone and the likelihood that you're depressed. Oh, wow. It just goes straight up. It goes straight up. It's the, every hour you add, uh, and and it's typical for a teenage girl to spend six hours on a, on a cell phone. So In a day. In a day. Yeah, and the rates of depression are rising at a really alarming rate, and suicide too, tragically. Well, that is striking. Do you happen to recall? I'm such a dork for the data. Like, uh, you know, roughly, hey, what's an extra hour do in terms of my odds for depression? At the top end, it's like 30 percent of the mm. cohort are depressed. So, man, do the math backwards. That's that's a around six hours uh, per day on the cell phone. Oh, that, that is striking. Yeah. And as you were talking about this human nature stuff with emails, it reminds me of one of my very first corporate internships. I remember I was at Eaton Corporation, mm. a diversified manufacturing. I had not heard of them before. Mm. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, wow, this is like a Fortune 500 company. This is pretty large and established. And so and so it was cool. You know, I was like, oh, man, it reminded me of this. I was familiar with office space before I'd actually had been in a cubicle like environment. Mm. And so it was like, there we were. And I actually had a lot of fun. It was interesting characters and 
intellectual challenges and I was like, oh, working is fun. <laughs> this is kind of <laughs> cool. You know, but one thing that really tripped me up was the emails because yeah. it was sort of like when I would get an email, I was like, wait, is that person, are they trying to, do they think that I'm not doing my job? <laughs> you know, I would have all these sort of paranoid thoughts pop in. Right. And then when I sent an email, I'd have a couple of times in which someone, you know, seemed kind of rankled with me. And, and I remember my buddy Dan and I, we sort of partnered up with each other. We called it PCS, Political Consulting Solutions, in which we would preview each other's emails and provide feedback on how it could be misconstrued in a way that's going to, you know, really upset the other person. And we spent a lot of time on this. It was wild. That's such a great example of what I'm talking about. I love that. And, and your solution is one that, broadly speaking, that I suggest, which is you begin to create a community that discusses the implications of this. Uh, the, the, the reason why most people don't do that um, is that one of the unintended consequences of making email easy compared to uh, office memos back in the day or, or uh, inter-office mail or whatever it was people used to do um, is that we got, we got tons of it now. We get, we're, we're buried in, and everybody talks about information overload. That's because it's easy to do. And so um, we have a difficult time just coping with it all. And so we tend to go through it very quickly. We just react emotionally. And so we actually are um, using that unconscious brain uh, in a way that that's also has its unintended consequences and leads to negativity and suspicion and paranoia and all those juicy things. So yeah, you're, that's a great example. Yeah. Well, thank you. And so you say you've laid out five key problems associated with this. And so I'd love to get your view on, you know, what are the problems and your sort of favorite practice to ameliorate that problem or to address it a bit? Yeah. So the first one I talked about is, is this lack of feedback is, is the fact that I can't detect what you're intending toward me. So uh, it's a, it's like a sensory deprivation chamber, most uh, uh, virtual communications in one form or another. So email is the worst because that's just words, um, black and white marks uh, uh, on a screen. Um, uh, of course, at audio conference, you get a little bit of the people's intent through the, uh, through the voice. Actually, some of that is stripped out and I can talk about the technical, technical reasons for that. Um, that gets a chapter in my book. Um, so audio conferences are worse than you think, which is why we find them so boring. But uh, nonetheless, there's a little bit of information there. And we get a little bit more in a video conference. But on the whole, video conferences, um, while people think, oh, I'm actually seeing the other person, you have to remember it's still just a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional person. So it's still screening out things that you get easily and instantly face-to-face -face that you don't get in video conferencing, which is why video conferencing is so tiring for most people. So that's the first big problem is the lack of feedback. Hmm. The second one is that as a result of that lack of feedback, we lack empathy. Um, normally, uh, say, if you're if you're standing with somebody, you're having a quick conversation and you say something sarcastic and you see the pain in their eyes, you can do something instantly. And people mostly do. Nice people on the whole, uh, <laughs> they'll pat you on the arm or say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. Or, or because they'll see the reaction in your eyes and they'll get right away that your your intent back to me is that, oh, you hurt my feelings. And, and so people can repair that because we have that empath, empath, empathic connection. So that's the second big problem is that empathic connection is just largely gone. Mm-hmm. The third problem is that you don't have any control of your own persona um, or not enough control uh, because what happens online, since it's done by machines, for machines, through machines, 
is that it remembers forever. So the classic example of this is the drunken frat boy and, and uh, sorority girl pictures on Facebook that come back to haunt uh-huh. you when you're trying to get your first job. You know, And we all we all can appreciate that, that sometimes things happen uh, in social media or, or online that we wish would go away. And, and some governments around the world have started to rewrite the rules so that you are allowed to insist that information like that be pulled down. But mm-hmm. it's not universal, not universal yet. And it's very hard to do. It's time consuming and a struggle. Yeah. And so lack of control over your own persona, the information that's out there is, is a problem. And this is an interesting one, because when I first started talking about this with my publishers, their reaction was, well, that doesn't seem all that important, uh, really, until mm-hmm. I said, uh, and they said, you might want to leave that one out. And then I said, well, come on now. Think of the number of times in a day that somebody Googles you. And they hadn't really thought about it before, but people Google you now when they meet you. If you're a potential customer or um, if uh, they're going to be your your customer, you Google them. Um, if you're going to date a relative of theirs, they'll Google you. Um, people Google each other now often and mm-hmm. on and on and on. And the result is that um, that there is a information about you out there online, sort of whether you're aware of it or not. And the other thing that happens is for people who do take control of this and create a website and a persona and, and you Google their name and up comes something that looks sort of bright and breezy and professional and interesting, right? And compare that with somebody else who you Google and maybe there are three or four different uh, Nick Morgans that come up and one of them looks a little sketchy and mm-hmm. the other one might be me and whatnot. Then you, you think, oh, this person doesn't exist, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. well, what's the matter with them, right? Why don't they have a website? So, uh, so in a way, it's the, it's also the competition um, that uh, if you don't control your persona, then people see you as less, less than human. So that's the, uh, that's the third big problem. Um, the, the, the fourth problem is, that and this is a really subtle one is that when you take out these emotions as i've been describing then it actually makes it hard to make good decisions and the reason for that is uh, we like to think of ourselves as logical beings who make logical decisions but in fact most of our decisions are based on emotions and there's a famous case of the uh, of a stroke victim named hm who's got, whose initials are used in the medical literature because he's so famous um but his uh, uh, you know he, he was kept anonymous but his initials are used. So he, he had a stroke which paralyzed his, the emotional centers of his brain. And he was therefore unable to make decisions hmm. because it's emotions we use to uh, rate the importance of something. Yeah. And this is easy to understand if you go back to a very simple example from your childhood. Hopefully this never happened to you, but let's pretend you walked up to a stove at age two and you saw this bright glowing orange thing and you thought, oh, that looks cool. And you put your finger on it. Mm-hmm. Then what happened? Well, then suddenly you were subsumed with rage and pain and anger and fear and, and terror. and You started screaming for your mother and all kinds of things happened, right? You never forgot that moment if that happened to you. And you made a decision right then and there and you always followed it ever since. Never put your finger on a glowing hot stove ever again. So that goes up there because so much pain is associated with it as a very high and important decision. Sounds silly, but that's the way in which our brain uh, create structures in order to allow us to make decisions. We rate things on their importance based on the number of times they come up in our memory and the the amounts of emotion that are attached to them. Mm-hmm. If you think of remodeling, recently we were remodeling our kitchen and we, there's a ton of decisions you have to make when you're remodeling a kitchen. Oh, yes. You have to decide 
Uh, what's the surfaces and what are the cabinets going to look like? And, and the knobs. There's so many choices of knobs. knobs. <laughs> Their whole store is just devoted to knobs. Pete. It's crazy. <laughs> you can lose your mind trying to make these decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Well, how do you make those decisions? Ultimately, uh, you you start out all all happy to do it. And kind of, yeah, let's pick the best one. And you do a little research. And then after a while, you've made about 50 decisions. You just can't stand anymore. You just start going, that one. <laughs> you just point and you say, I'll, I'll take that one. What are you basing it on? You're basing it on some kind of emotional memory that that uh, drawer pull reminded you of one that you used to have in your home when you were a kid and you loved it or you want one that's different from the one you used to have in your home when you were a kid because you hated the home when you were a kid. You know? So that's how we make those kind of decisions. We make them based on emotions and memories. Mm-hmm. Or even if you're imagining the future or likening it to, it's like, oh man, that's so futuristic. That's like some cutting edge Star Trek space age knob there. I want to I want to be like exactly. Captain Picard when I'm opening my drawer. <laughs> <laughs> that fits my image of myself. Yeah. yeah or the image totally. of that I want to be. Yeah. So that's the fourth problem. And then the, the final one is that um, when you uh, compromise this kind of decision making and emotional connection, then what happens is people don't commit in the same way. And this is where we get into the whole trolling problem and the fact that we've all experienced at a very simple level. Like if uh, we contrast, say, the Amazon website, most of us shop on Amazon and we keep going back to Amazon. Why? Because they're completely obsessive about making that experience work for us. Mm-hmm. But think about another shopping website that you've gone to where the experience wasn't that great. Maybe the, the response was slow or or uh, it was hard to find the right product or, or in the end they sent you the wrong one, you had to send it back. And that was an incredible hassle. How many times are you going to go back to that website? Mm, yeah. Never, right. right? You're one and done. And that's the nature of the online world is one and done um, compared to a face-to-face world where if you have a, say, convenient coffee shop, maybe one time the the yeah, barista screws up the coffee and gives you something that doesn't taste very good. But you forgive him because he's a human being and it's local and convenient. And you're going to go back there again, right? Yeah. And if it happens enough times, maybe you won't. You'll find another place. But face-to-face, the experience is very different. We have a much higher tolerance and a much stronger sense of commitment to people that we meet face-to-face. And, and that's the final problem. It's just the, the, the uh, online commitment, the online connection between people is very fragile and very transient. And so if we try to communicate, and this is my main point in the book, is we're still trying to communicate as if uh, we were – living in a face-to-face world. And so we assume those kind of connections are made on the same basis as they are in the real face-to-face world, and they're not. And mm-hmm. so I go into a email conversation in a, in a way I haven't really reflected on, kind of assuming the other person knows my intent. Why? Because when I talk to them face-to-face, they pick up my intent without any effort. So I don't have to put a lot of that into my email yeah. if I'm thinking in those terms. But in fact, I do. And that's really... The beginning of the solution is I say um, you need to start putting in the emotions and the clarity and the intent, specifically the human intent, into your email. Even and it feels strange at first, mm-hmm. but I say it all begins with a question which a neuroscientist told me he thinks about uh, under the circumstances, which is how does what I just said make you feel? Okay. As soon as you ask that question, then the whole game changes and we can begin to turn virtual communications into something that works not quite as well still as face-to-face because of the way our unconscious minds are wired, but it's going to work reasonably well. But that's the key thing. And there are two implications of that. First of all, it allows you to tell me how you're feeling emotionally 
gives it gives time for that and gives the space for it. But second, it also gives you the respect to sh- to say I care about how you feel. Now, face to face, I can't help but care because if I say something and and then uh, it hurts your feelings and I see the pain in your eyes, then I'm hardwired to care about that because we humans are decent, mm-hmm. most of us. Um, you know, the number of psychos are fair, thank God, fairly small. Uh, and so most of us uh, are hardwired to respond sympathetically to that. We have empathy. And so we care. Um, but online, we don't. And so that's why we need to um, to ask that question. How does what I just said make you feel? So it's about taking the time to do that and also showing the other person the respect and the empathy and the caring that says, I want to know these things. I'm going to take a moment to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it involves a real shift. In, it, it's not difficult to understand or, or technically difficult to do, but it involves a huge shift in just the way we think about communication because essentially what we're doing is putting back in the emotional connection, the, the intent, the clarity about intent, which we do reasonably well most of the time face-to-face and we do horribly online, horribly. Yeah, well, that's striking in terms of that I could see, you know, you've made a compelling case here for why this is extra critically necessary when it comes to the online dimensions. Although I don't think it's a bad question for in-person contexts either, because I think a lot of times, I guess, for example, if you're looking at a room of a dozen people in a conference room and you're mm. presenting something, it'd be hard to kind of keep your eye on all of them you know, at the same time. That's right. And so it'd be great to get some of that feedback. What's great is, is it can even surface information that's not yet conscious, I'd say. I'm just imagining this playing out to the person you're saying it to, because like, how does this make you feel? Especially if they're like on the spot and they can't, you know, squirm out and say nothing. They might say, if you have a decent relationship, I guess some people will just not say anything. Yes. Yeah. I can imagine a lot of times they'll say, how does this make you feel? And they're like, yeah, it's fine, I guess. And it's just like the emotion is sort of like uninspired. Right. But then you'll know. Yeah. Then you'll know that. You can tell by the reaction. <laughs> it's like this proposal is fine. I guess it'll probably get the job done, but it's not right. going to inspire, you know, tremendous energy, enthusiasm and commitment from me and the people on my team. Are we okay with that? Or are we not okay with that? Oh, well, now that's a whole nother conversation that maybe needs to be had. That's right. It's a good thing to have. And I think one of the things you're pointing to is that, um, What's happening is that some of our bad behavior that we've learned online is in danger of leaking back into mm. our face to face. And so and, and we've all we've all complained about this when we go into a meeting and half the people are on their cell phones. And you're yeah. going, wait a minute, don't you even have the courtesy to put down the cell phone and talk to me? Here we are face to face. We've gone to all the trouble to get together face to face and you're still on your cell phone. Come on. That is an acceptable behavior. And some people surface that and insist that people leave their cell phones at the door or turn them off or whatever. But um, I've noticed more and more, and I know many other people have as well. I'm sure you have bad behavior from virtual communications. Mm-hmm. We're leaking back into face to face and and in effect making the, the worst possible outcome would be if face to face were dragged down to the level of virtual communications. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just imagining we would pull out an emoji note card from our pockets <laughs> and to just display that. This is my response to what you've said. <laughs> well, uh, I say in the book that we're in danger of raising a generation of people who are uncomfortable communicating face to face and incompetent communicating online. Mm. Well, that is quotable. Tweet that. Well, and spooky. Yeah, scary. Well, I want to kind of hit something you said earlier before it disappears. And I was quite intrigued. You mentioned that because of our kind of 
false assessment of what's being transmitted in audio, that leads to it being very boring. And because of our false assessment with video, that results in the 2D versus 3D, that results in it being very tiring. Can you explain that pathway a little bit more and, and these two dimensions? Yeah, sure. So this involves a slightly technical explanation, but I'll, I'll make it as uh, oh, sure. simple and, and brief as I can. So uh, what happened uh, when the phones were invented and the engineers said, we've got to get the human voice into, uh, into twisted copper pair, that was the original phone line, was that they studied the human voice and realized that the human voice covers three bands of sound. So there, there's the basic pitch at which, say, you and I are speaking. And if I held one of the vowels that I'm saying out loud and made a kind of a note out of that, so no, if I held that tone, mm-hmm. we could find that on the piano. We could find that pitch. Yeah. And the pitch at which people speak exists within a pretty narrow band of about around 200 hertz. Um, it goes up to about 300, 350, mm-hmm. and goes down to about 100. But it's a pretty narrow band of several hundred hertz wide. Um, and the human, if you think about human hearing, one of the extraordinary things is we can hear up to 20,000 hertz when we're young and healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, as time goes on, if we listen to too much loud rock music, we lose a bit at the top. But the basic human uh, hearing range is 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. Now, you think about why did we evolve to do that? And the reason is something quite extraordinary about the human voice. We can identify other people's voices without any apparent effort at all. Hmm. That's an extraordinary achievement when you think about it. As soon as you pick up the phone and it's your significant other calling or a family member, your mother, your father, friends, family, or if you hear um, politicians or famous actors' voices on television or on the radio, you instantly know who all these people are. You know, without any effort, several hundred voices. It's an extraordinary thing when you think about it. And the way you know that is there's the basic pitch that people speak, but Every human voice is like a a fingerprint in that it's individual and is characterized by a certain set of overtones over the basic pitch and undertones under the basic pitch. Mm -hmm. So there are three bands, as I said. They're the overtones that your voice makes, which we can't hear consciously, but are fed into the sound of Pete's voice or Nick's voice. And then there are the the, the basic pitch at which we're speaking, and then there are the undertones. Now, what the engineers realized was you could leave off the overtones and undertones, and you'd still be able to understand the basic pitch. You'd be able to hear and understand what people were saying. They noticed that the human voice became a little less distinctive. It was a little harder to tell people apart, but not impossible, because you still got some of that sound richness even in the narrow band. Okay. So that's what did for for uh, telephones and then the same thing happened there was never a time when it suddenly became convenient to put massive more bandwidth into the sound of the human voice once the original uh, science had been done nobody ever thought let's redo this and suddenly increase you know the the, uh, the earbuds and the, and the and the speaker phones and everything so they can get 20,000 to 20 um, hertz so they never did that as a result these these sounds are uh, are vastly restricted to that narrow band of the basic pitch. Hmm. Now, here's why that's important. When you take out the the undertones, especially also the overtones to a certain extent, but when you take out the undertones and you take out the emotion, emotion is conveyed in the undertones. Mm-hmm. Now, as because of our earlier discussion, you'll know that that's very important. As soon as you take out the emotions, then it gets hard to make good decisions. And it's also very boring <laughs> because emotions, other people's intent or what we care about. So basically, the simple way to put this is when you're on a regular team meeting with your with your team, which is spread out all over the world, and your boss is droning on about something, you can't tell as well 
what the emotions are being conveyed in his or her voice because the undertones are, are taken out. They're edited out. Mm. And as a result, your boss is both boring and you can't read him or her as well. And so that's why there's the stories of what people do on audio conferences in order to stay human alive and, 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 and on the planet are, are hilarious and legion. I mean, people, the vast majority of people, as soon as they get an audio conference, put their phone on mute and start doing their email. Mm-hmm. They're only half there. And then there are lots of good stories. When I was doing the research, I came up with a number of hilarious stories about gross and disgusting things, some of which I couldn't put in the book, that people do <laughs> when when they put the phone on mute instead of listening on the audio conference. So You um, can't let that go. Can you give us just one or two examples, please? <laughs> well, <laughs> of course, people go to the bathroom and then okay, forget. Sure. And so oh, they do, yeah. You know, make revolting noises. Embarrassing. Yeah, embarrassing noises. But my my favorite, <laughs> people have sex, uh, oh, believe okay. it or not, and sometimes that gets overheard. While you're on the poor audio conference, imagine somebody else is having a good time. <laughs> but but my favorite my favorite one my favorite one is there was there was a team that had a uh, a group based in uh, in South America, in Brazil, I think it was, um, and a team in Asia and a team in the United States. And obviously, everybody except whoever the poor soul was that was talking had their phones on mute because an earthquake happened to the Brazilian team. <laughs> they left their phones on, on mute and fled the building and didn't come back. And nobody noticed the rest of the world didn't know the rest of the team had no idea that their teammates in Brazil were suffering an earthquake. So that tells you just how dissociated <laughs> and ridiculous audio conferences are. <laughs> oh man. If the other somewhere else on the phone can have an earthquake and you don't even know. It is wild. It is not just one person. <laughs> it's just right. numerous. It was a, so there were several sitting around the that conference room table, which was by then shaking, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> that is wild. Oh, well, thank you for that. So, well, now with these undertones, overtones business, now I hear that I have a, a mental image or I guess audiogram, audio picture of what that sounds like in terms of when I'm speaking on the phone with someone or a conference call. But like if I'm using something like a Zoom or a Skype, are we collecting the full range from an audio bandwidth signal? It depends a lot on the technology. Uh, what happens is, though, even if you use a good microphone, then the person at the other end may not be getting all the information because of what he or she may be listening on. Okay, yeah. If you're listening on earbuds, earbuds are the worst, even good ones. Um, of course, uh, you use this kind of trick uh, technology. They don't actually uh, reproduce the low notes uh, and they use a trick of the human ear to make you think you're hearing it by suggesting, uh, hmm. by doubling up on the on the note. Oh, so I'm not actually hearing the real stuff, but it's kind of trying no. to give me something that resembles it. Your brain is filling it in. Whoa. Right. Your brain is filling it in to a certain extent. And so you're not actually, so we're having this lovely conversation, Pete, but you're not actually hearing my voice. You're hearing a kind of memory and a construction of my voice. Hmm. So that's interesting. Well, and I want to get your quick view then on while we're on that subject. So I've used a lot of meeting platforms in my day and you've done a boatload of research. I know that different circumstances and contexts call for different solutions. But if you had to give me your personal favorite in the world of Zoom versus BlueJeans versus GoToMeeting versus Adobe Connect, you know, which one would you say reigns supreme? What I'm liking is uh, so there are some 
Zoom setups that I've seen, uh, Zoom seems to be the easiest to me, just of all the ones I've used. I've used them all. I have no particular beef or uh, no uh, no investment in any particular one. Uh, but Zoom seems to be the easiest. Um, and, and some Zoom setups are starting to build in better speakers so that you can get a broader range of response uh, built into the room, for example. And so I'm in favor of those uh, kind of setups where we start to put back in the sounds that have been stripped out. But understand one other thing. We were going to talk about video. So mm-hmm. let me just quickly say the issue with video. And that's another interesting one. So that we humans are brought up to think about the five senses. And that's sort of what we imagine we have. But there's actually a sixth sense that all of us have, which works very, very hard. And that's called preoperception. And preoperception is the, is the effort that your mind and my mind make uh, to track our location in space and the location of everybody around us. And so just to pick a fun example, that's why most people find uh, cocktail parties so exhausting because there are a lot of people milling around and you keep track of where all those people are. Your unconscious mind is keeping track of where all those people are, even if you can't see them. So even the ones behind you, uh, you're doing it with a little bit of uh, sort of that weird sixth sense again that people have, a, mm-hmm. the, you know, the prickly feeling in the back of your neck. You kind of know somebody's behind there. And so maybe you sneak a little look. So it's a combination of looking and sort of the feeling that you get um, when there's somebody behind you and and uh, physical sensation and shadows and all. You use all the uh, means at your disposal. Preoperception is a very hardworking little sense to keep track of where everybody is. Well, on video, that doesn't come through. And once again, that channel is emptied out pretty much because you can't tell where that other person actually is in space because they're sitting on a two-dimensional screen, which is maybe four or five feet from your face. But you know they aren't kind of there because you only see like their head and shoulders. Um, And so you know they aren't actually four feet away from you, but you don't know where they are. Are they 10 feet, 20 feet? And so your brain works really hard and assumes that that person is both more dangerous than they actually are hmm. and further away uh, or closer than they actually are. You don't get a good read on it. And so your brain's working extra hard and it's, again, filling that channel with information which is uh, uh, made up, essentially. And so that we, that we find that very exhausting. Um, and that's why people often end up shouting at each other on, on video conferences and or report themselves fatigued after an hour of a video conference. It's very hard um, uh, unless you really practiced at it, to do a long, long video conference. Whereas most people, if they're enjoying the conversation, wouldn't mind an hour or two conversation face-to-face. Well, you're bringing me back to some days in which I've done 11 hours of video coaching calls in a day. And uh, I can confirm wow. that tuckered me out good. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'm I've, impressed it went that long. I've reduced the load <laughs> in, in the years <laughs> since. Well, just remember, you're making your unconscious brain work very hard. And, and I talk in the book about things you can do to improve it. Um, so, so one of the things that sounds, it sounds trivial, but it's really not, is uh, you can do this on your end, is set up your video conferencing to give the other person subtle clues as to the depth of perception involved in the room. So I say, um, have something that's near you that they can easily estimate the size of, and then put something like a plant um, you know, a few feet back and then have a wall clearly behind that with things on it that will help them size uh, what they're seeing. Um, and if you give people those three layers of depth, then that's actually visually very helpful for them. And so they'll find talking to you much less stressful than they otherwise would. It takes a certain amount of effort. And of course, adequate lighting. Everybody has heard that, I'm mm-hmm. sure now about video conferencing. It's, it takes because it's just a camera, a TV camera, and it, and it takes 
a lot of light to to reproduce enough through the pixels that uh, you, you need a lot of extra light. Um, and that's something that most people don't do. And so we're squinting into into the gloom and we can't see the other person very well. So adequate lighting and a sense of depth perception really go a long way to improving um, that sense of ease with the, that you'll give the other person. Now, that won't help you unless the other person does the same thing. But at least you can be kind to uh, whoever you're talking to. Well, now part of me is wondering if you did the reverse, you know, in terms of like I put like a giant can of Coca-Cola, <laughs> you know, just to really mess with their whole setup. You see, that wicked thought yeah. see, that comes from online communication. There you <laughs> oh, you're, man. Prone, you're prone to misbehave. <laughs> I'm guilty. Well. Tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we, you know, hear about a couple of your favorite things and to see if there's any any new favorite things since last time. Yeah, sure. So uh, uh, I would just say one of the other quick fixes that I talk about, which I recommend very highly for anybody who has an ongoing team audio conference, that sort of arrangement where you have people in Singapore and the U.S. and Europe, say, uh, and you talk to them all every week or all the time, um, and you need to keep an ongoing happy relationship with them. Then. Um, at the beginning of every call, do the uh, virtual temperature check is what I call it, um, where you ask them, think of a stoplight, red, yellow, or green. You can also say amber if you like amber better, red, amber, or green. And red means um, this is an awful day. There's disaster. You probably should let me off this call. Yellow mm -hmm. means I'm having a stressful day, but um, I'm, I'm okay to be on the call, but cut me some slack. And green means everything's great. And what you find is, uh, if you if you ask people just to do that simple check, they feel they they have permission to do that. Um, whereas often, what happens on audio conferences is your world may be falling apart around you, but you get to the audio conference because you have to do it; it's your job, um, and you don't feel comfortable saying online on an audio conference like that. Well, actually, life's awful right now, and here's what's going on. That that audio conference setup, because it's stripped of emotion, doesn't give us the permission to do that typically. Uh, and so uh, audio conferences often get off to a bad start because half the team is is uh, missing in action, um, either literally or fi figuratively, and nobody knows. And so resentment mm -hmm. builds up and misunderstandings build up. So this is a way of just getting clear and allowing whoever the team leader is to say, if somebody does say red, say, well, okay, I'm sorry to hear that. Do you want to talk about it? Do you want to be let off the call? Shall I get back to you later? Do you want to have a side conversation? It allows you just to handle that in a compassionate and thoughtful way. Um, and same with yellow. You can say, well, so I'm sorry that it's not green. Do you want to talk about it or is it good enough that you can get along? And they'll, they'll make a choice. And then do the same thing at the end of the call. It's very quick. It's easy to do. Um, and yet it allows you to put some of that uh, emotional connection back in that the Internet has and virtual communication has taken out. Hmm. Excellent. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I always come back to uh, the only reason to give a speech is to change the world. That's my favorite all-time quote. Um, and I probably said that the last time. That's still my all-time favorite quote. I use that with clients all the time when we're talking about asking, is this speech have enough impact? Is it going to change the world? And, of course, that means for a specific audience, yeah. a specific moment. Uh, so it, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a politician announcing world peace or something like that. Uh, people can change the world in small but important ways. But I think it's a great, great quote and a great test for uh, any kind of public communication. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite book? Favorite book. I just read the 12 Rules for Life, uh, All right. the Peterson book. Um, and I think that's very thoughtful. It's not that the 
12 rules are so uh, surprising. They aren't. They're basically the golden rule and a few others of decent behavior to each other. But what's really incredible about that book is the discussion leading up to each of the 12 rules. It's just very deep, thoughtful examination of human frailty and the nature of evil in the world and why we do the things we do and how we need to treat each other. Just a very deep and important book, I think. Oh. I got a lot out of that. Oh, cool. Thank you. Like you say, the rules won't won't surprise you, but the, it's the discussion that's thoughtful and useful. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite habit? A favorite habit? Yeah. Besides coffee? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Coffee and cookies. Uh, my new favorite habit is, uh, uh, is I've started to do more yoga uh, and Tai Chi uh, because uh, Tai Chi is beautiful. It, it, it's, uh, it's kind of like organized slow dance. I was never a very good dancer, so mm-hmm. Tai Chi sort of gives me the illusion that, that I can kind of control uh, my body in space. And uh, my only fear about it is it doesn't feel like much exercise. Hmm. I'm not working up a sweat doing Tai Chi, but my Tai Chi instructor keeps telling me, no, this is very good for you. This will be very good for your circulation and your balance and all kinds of good things. So I've really been enjoying Tai Chi. Oh, cool. Recommend it highly. Very good way to de-stress and to do a different thing than your normal day-to-day life, which involves much virtual communication. Oh, thank you. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Uh, publicwords.com is our website. Mm-hmm. P-U-B-L-I-C-W-O-R-D-S. And um, there's a contact form on there. You can reach out or just shoot me an email at nick at publicwords.com. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yes, I do. Uh, if you're spending any kind of time communicating virtually, then I challenge you to think about how am I going to make clear what my intent is in these conversations and these communications? And how am I going to give other people the respect to find out what their intent or reaction is? So it begins with asking yourself the question, asking other people around you the question, how did what I just say make you feel? Mm-hmm. And proceeding from there. But we need to put that respect and care for each other's emotions and reactions back into virtual communication. Awesome. Well, Nick, this has been a real treat. Thanks again for coming on back. And I wish you tons of luck with Can You Hear Me and all the good stuff you're doing. Pete, thank you so much. It's always great to talk to you. And I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I think the thing that'll probably stick with me the most is how Dr. Nick Borg explained how conference calls are boring, or rather why they're boring. Because, wow, I've often felt that, boy, this is so boring. What's going on? So if you're feeling that, you know, not to worry. It's not that you hate your job and your colleagues and you need to get out of there because you're no longer stimulated and engaged in your work. Nay, nay. It's just a matter of voice frequencies missing. And that's why you're bored. You don't know what the emotional content or intent going on over there. So I thought that was pretty helpful. That and that powerful question. How do you feel about what I just said? So much good stuff. Nick Morgan coming back for a second helping of the goods. If you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F358. And I hope you'll push the subscribe button. If you haven't already, you'll catch our next guest. It is Karen Hurt, and she is talking about the fear of speaking up, what it is, where it comes from, and how to ultimately overcome it. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.